You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. before first service, uh, I was a little shaky, and I was thinking about, like, why why am I feeling shaky? And I was thinking about it. I didn't do enough yesterday to be tired and worn out and can't possibly be too much coffee. Um, so what is this? And I realized it was, uh, it was anticipation, and I hadn't felt that in a long time before delivering a message, that sense of nervousness about it. Um, because this is, uh, this is actually a big message. It's a, a kind of message that I really appreciate, so a little bit about my makeup. I absolutely, 100% of the time, need to do the right thing. Whatever that right thing might be, it just weighs so heaven, heavily on me that this is what we must do, and everyone else must be doing it as well. Because <laughs> this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And so... These sort of messages to me, they just speak to my heart, and I just, I wanted to hit home and just, oh, yes, Lord. And my favorite message I've ever heard was, uh, some of you may have heard the preacher Paris Reedhead and his message, 10 Shekels in a Shirt. And it's just so deeply convicting to the church and people, and I listen to it about once a year, and it's just, I gotta be chopping wood or something while I'm doing it, and it's just, yes, Lord. Um, but I realized as I was preparing this this week and going through it, not everybody enjoys messages like that. Um, so it can come across as a little, little hard, a little bit difficult receiving so much truth all at once. I want all the truth. I want it all at once. Um, but truth needs to be seasoned with grace. And so as I went through this, I had to go back over it and consider where's the grace in this. And so I want to begin this message as I will end this message with the heart behind it is what is the purpose of what I'm going to talk about today. And the purpose in that is it is my deep and abiding hope that you see yourselves the way that God sees you. That you look at yourself and you don't see your past and you don't see your mistakes and you don't see your failings and you don't see your faults, but you see yourself as God sees you and everything you can be with him in your life. So 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is as the Lord sees you. And I think so often in life we tell ourselves things that diminish that. Tell ourselves lies, maybe lies we've heard from the world, that will limit that truth. But this is the way God sees you. And this is the purpose of the messages this morning, is that hopefully you will see yourself this way. And so, yes, this is, it has been our habit to whenever someone comes in from the outside and leaves a deposit at the church to massage it in, particularly when they bring difficult things, because it's actually really convenient to go to another church and, hey, here's this really difficult thing for all of you. I'm going to go home now. <laughs> and so we want to make sure we don't just let that go, 
We want to really untangle that a bit, um, dive into it, see what is the real heavy truth for our body here for right now. And so as I prepared for this, I reflected upon the past few weeks. And three weeks ago, we talked about Genesis 25. And the whole emphasis of Genesis 25 was the measure of your life. What is the legacy you're living, leaving, living? When you go to meet Jesus and everybody remembers your life, how will that go? Will it be an example set? Will people look at your life and go, wow. They were a godly individual. They weren't perfect, but they chased after Jesus every single day. I hope to be like that, Lord. Would you grow that in me, Lord? Or will it be a lesson learned? Where you look at their life, someone looks at your life and goes, they made it, (laughs) but just barely. What is it we want people to consider when they reflect upon our life? What is the legacy we are leaving? And then two weeks ago when Brian came in, he really spent a lot of time out of Isaiah 58 and the verses 11 and 12, talking about the church is meant to be a well-watered garden in a scorched place. It's meant to be a place of life in abundance and the presence of the Lord is there but it's in a desolate land. It's someplace that's scorched, and you can't be scorched unless you were on fire. You were burned down. That's the place that's residing around the well-watered garden. And you only have a well-watered garden if you have a gardener, someone to water it, someone to care for it, someone to tend for it, and the gardener is the Lord. And the really important truth with that realization, if the gardener is the Lord, that means you're a vegetable. (laughs) You're a carrot or some lucky few, or a sunflower, and you bring light and joy to the world. But most of us, if we're really honest, we're all potatoes. We're hardy, we're in the dirt a lot, we hide out, we get people through the winter. But it's the realization, I'm not the gardener. I'm a plant in the garden. Now, that's not just to be tended, that's not just to be watered, that's not just to be loved upon, it's to bear fruit. There is still purpose, even though you're not the gardener. You're meant to bear fruit. At the end of this passage, we had the four R's, the thing that every preacher loves. Good old alliteration just drives the message. Talking about that the church needs to rebuild, it needs to repair, it needs to restore, and it needs to raise up need to look at the church as it was. It was always intended to be. And how do we get back to that? And then last week we had Easter and we talked about the resurrection and the life, the future, and the hope. And the emphasis that God has life for you now. It's not just to what's to come. It's not after you die. It's not long away. God has something for you right this moment, a newness of life but it will require you to flip the world's view of life on its head. You will have to consider abundance and not ease. Purpose, not power. Worth and not wealth. God may give you some of these things, but they cannot be your driving force in life. They cannot be your motivation. You have to consider the things that the Lord has given us that are lasting in life. And as we, I grouped all these things together and I considered them as a wholeness to these last three weeks, as we reflect upon this now, I asked some questions. 
I re-listened to Brian's preach this last week, and I just started writing them down. And I have seven questions. And the very first one is, what was the original intent for the church that must be rebuilt? What is it that God desired for his church to look like? What was happening before that isn't happening now? What needs to be restored? What compromises or excuses have been made that have allowed us to lower the bar? Now, I consider the church from 100 years ago, let's say, and we lead up to now, and it's really, it's a slow, gradual compromise. You don't even notice it so much. If you reflect upon the whole thing, you go, wow, how did we get here? But you don't notice it as it happens. We've had the rare privilege, and I'll call it a privilege, of going through COVID, and we just watched them just drop the bar on the ground. And how with life and with church and with experience, we just, nobody knew what to do. Everybody went into a panic. Everybody wanted to keep everybody safe initially, and we dropped the bar. And since then, we've been trying to raise that bar back up. But the thing is, if the bar is right here and go, wow, we are way better than we were at the beginning of COVID, we're actually in church again. We're not watching in our pajamas anymore. Look how much better we're doing. But the bar was up here. To be satisfied with this simply because somebody dropped the bar would diminish what God wants to do with us. We have to continue bringing it back to where God wants it to be. Not how I want it to be or any of the elders want it to be. We need to reflect on what God wants it to be. That needs to be the emphasis. Everything, so just to make that clear, everything I'm saying today, it's not what I want. I'm just going to be reading you scripture. I'm going to read to you what God has said. And now I do want what God wants, and I hope you want what God wants too, but some of it's going to be hard. I, I love truth. I'm going to try to season this with as much grace as I can. Why have we allowed the fears of the world to break into the church? When we look at the world right now, when I flip through the news, I don't listen to news anymore. I'll just scroll through and see what I need to see. But I don't see Happy Puppy Dog Tuesday anywhere. No, I see murders, I see massacres, I see shootings, I see earthquakes, I see wars, I see disaster when I look at the world. I see people arguing about inane things with people I will never meet for things I don't care about over and over and over again. When you look at just the, the powder keg that is the political climate within our nation right now, it's just, it's frightening. It's a frightening time to be in. I consider it, it feels very much like that meme where the guy opens the door and he's got pizza and the house is on fire. That's the world we live in. And there's a lot to be fearful for within it. But why are we fearful when we have Jesus? We've got the one with the plan. We've got the one with all power, absolute control. He knows where we're headed. He's in complete assurity. Are we assured with him? Are we assured in him? How could we possibly let any of this fear seep into the church? How can we restore our connections to one another? We are at a time where we weren't willing to stand within six feet of people just two years ago. Let alone come to church together, let alone go to work let alone have any contact at all. We've been restoring connections. We've been restoring this idea of community and fellowship and being with one another. How are we continuing in this process? 
how far ahead are we looking in what we're doing? I remember those first few days when we shut down, we were looking at day by day, what are we going to do? Eventually, we were able to start thinking week by week, month by month. We're about a year or so out right now. We're doing good, but it's not nearly far enough if we want to be a generational church. If we want our children to still be in this church, still doing God's good work, still moving things forward, we're not looking far enough. Because that's 30 years down the line. If we're actually looking 30 years down the line, that's going to change the decisions we're making about tomorrow and about next week and about next month and about next year. But if we're always only looking ahead, are we going to be where we want to be when our children inherit what we have? Are we leaving a strong foundation for them? Is everything going to be set that they can go farther than we're at? It's not simply a matter of they're keeping the status quo. We want more. We want greater. We want expansion. We want God to do even greater things through them. Are we leaving the foundation that will make that possible? So as I put all this together and I culminate, culminated it in my seventh question, all of this revolves around this one thing. How are we rearranging our lives around the mission of God? Because what I find so often happens, we try to rearrange the mission of God around our already overly busy life. And we, we, we get asked or we feel we need to do something and we open up the schedule and we don't clear the schedule. We go, all right, well, we can fit God in on Sunday still because we've already got that blocked out, but let's see if we can fit. Would two Tuesdays from now work, Lord? And we're trying to rearrange the mission around our life as opposed to our life around the mission. And if we do that, we will always limit what God can do with us because we're saying, God, your mission is subject to my schedule. And this is going to be a very difficult personal choice for every single person to make. I'm not going to diminish the difficulty of it at all. But I'm going to present the expectation that God has on all of us. Now, before this, I'm going to emphasize, I'm not talking about your salvation here. Your salvation comes from the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he went to Calvary, he died for your sins, and his forgiveness is available to each and every one of you if you would repent and turn to him. Accept him as Lord and make him king of your life and determine to follow him to the end of your days. Yeah. If you genuinely do this, you are saved. Nothing added, nothing less. That is what brings you salvation. What I'm going to talk about here is what happens after that. What about the rest of your life that God has in store for you, that God has a plan for? That's what we're talking about today. So what are the expectations of God's call on each and every one of our lives? And the first thing is this. It is a giving up of your way, your desires, your wishes, your wants, everything that you have as an idol in your life. I'm going to use that word specifically. Matthew 10, 37 through 39 says this. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's this emphasis that if you place anything above the Lord, he's saying you're not worthy of him. And anything means anything. And I think most people are willing to lay aside the job, they're willing to lay aside the dreams, they're willing to lay aside the stuff, but the hardest thing to lay aside is what Jesus mentioned here. He mentioned family. But he's saying, if you're going to put your parents above me, if you're going to put your kids above me, if you're going to put your relatives above me, you're not worthy of me. That's one of the most difficult things to tell somebody. It's a really difficult thing for me to say up here and tell each and every one of you that God wants everything. He wants absolute devotion from you. He wants to be first and foremost in your life. And this can be really difficult. I've talked to a lot of people that struggle with this, with family, and it's not usually with their little kids. It's usually with their grown ones. The ones that have either fallen away from the faith or they've resented the amount of time their parents spent in church and they give them a hard time about it time and time and time again. Other relatives who are non-believers, they give them a hard time about it time and time again and it wears and you just almost want to lie about what you're doing. And God's saying, if this is where you're at, you either need to get them on board. That's the best thing. Get them saved, get them on mission with you. Because what a privilege to be serving right alongside your family. But if they're, if they're not willing, you need to be able to be honest and upfront with them about the call of God in your life. Is that going to be hard? Absolutely. Is it going to be worth it? Absolutely. But it doesn't just have to be your family. It can be ease that you're idolizing. I don't want the inconvenience it can be, I, I want this career. I want to fulfill this dream. I want to go on this vacation. I, I want to make a million dollars. I've just got a dream for it and I've got to stick to my plan. I want life to be comfortable. It might be all of these things. But I think most of all it ends up being, I want to have control over my life. I want to be in charge. And God says, who's king? Am I king? Or are you king? And to each and every one of us, we have to make that decision. Will we do things Jesus' way by giving up our own? When we look to Isaiah 58, he talks about how are we to do things his way? It's an interesting sort of thing that comes right after, immediately after the passage about the well-watered garden and the rebuilding of things. And how are we going to start doing things God's way? It says this, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The immediate thing he talks about doing his way is the Sabbath. It's the one thing that he tells his people to not do anything. Do nothing on this day. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy me. Enjoy creation on this one day a week. If you're going to follow after me your whole life, let's start with your schedule. Give me a day where you don't do anything. And it is recounted again and again and again throughout Scripture, harped on over and over again. You're profaning the Sabbath. You're profaning the Sabbath. And we look at today and we tell people, you need to take a Sabbath. You go, I'm a little busy. Got a lot going on. I kind of need that day to do other things. And the emphasis to ourselves, if, if you're saying that you are going to give your whole life up to me, your world up to me, you'll die for me, you're going to follow me to the ends of the earth, but you can't take a day? How much are we really following after God? It's a hard-hitting thing to us. It's a thing we have to realize. If, if you want to see the great and amazing things of God moving in this world, we've got to start with the little things. It's the emphasis of Luke 16.10 when he says, Those who are faithful in little will be faithful in much, and those who are not faithful in little will not be faithful in much. Because we want amazing things. We want, we want our nation to turn back to the Lord. We want the world to come to Him. We want to see the great and amazing things. We say, Lord, what do we need to do? And he says, start with the little things. Do just this and watch the incredible things I'm going to do. Yeah. If we can't begin with that, how are we going to do the mighty works of God? So what's the mission? If we've been able to determine this, okay, I'm going to set aside my way. I'm going to do this God's way. What are we doing? What are we called to? What's our purpose here? What's the game plan, Lord? It's twofold. First of all is making disciples. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're called to tell people about Jesus. Bring them to their Savior, the only one that can redeem them. Bring people to Jesus. And then tell them everything else he said. Because if all we're doing is bringing people to Jesus and getting them excited about the Lord and getting them to accept them, and then we go, okay, great. Keep moving on. Go find a church. I got to go save somebody else. Those are the seeds that have fallen along the rocks in Jesus' parable of the sower. They sprout up. They're excited. As soon as any sort of scorching heat hits them, they wither and they fall away. If we want them to be in well-tilled soil, we have to actually disciple them. We have to bring them along. We can't just teach them about Jesus. They're standing on the sand right now. And, Look, over there is a rock. That's going to save your life. They go, great. And you go walk away. Walk them to the rock. We have to tell them about Jesus. We have to bring them along. We have to bring them through the things that he said that help them get through those scorching times in their lives to remain in the well-watered garden. Second half of the mission is caring for the least among us. Throughout most of the law, 
And a lot of what Jesus said is simply about caring for one another, caring for those that cannot care for themselves. Out of Deuteronomy 10, 18, it says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, you, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was prison, in prison and you came to me. It's talking about living a selfless life and considering others as worthy of your time and your effort. People that you don't want to go to. People that are difficult. People that are grimy. People that got a lot of problems. Say, Lord, I, they're so hard. And he says, so are you. <laughs> and I still died for you. Live for them. Consider them. I don't think I've said anything revolutionary here. Anything anybody doesn't really know or heard before. It means there's something getting in the way of this universally happening. There's a problem. So I'm going to return back to Isaiah 59. It's going to sound very much like the world you live in. And keeping in mind, this was written about 2,500 years ago. And it's going to sound like the world you live in today. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. And we look out in the world and we say, God, where are you? He's not impotent. It's not that he's unable. And so we must look at, well, what is happening that's causing our world to be this way? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Later on in the passage, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation is but is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins are testifying against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, 
speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. In this way, the world has changed very little. Or it has simply got back to where it was at this point. And it's no wonder the world is the way it is. And there's so often that we desire a change. We desire something to shift. We want somebody to do something about it. And we, we see people out in the world proclaiming and shouting and putting truth out there. And there might be the thought of there was just more people, more preachers like this person. There would be real change. But I can tell you, I can preach the most magnificent message in the world. We could fill stadiums with people that want to hear it. But if no one walks out what God has for them, it makes no difference. Because the only true solution to all of this is what comes to follow in the passage immediately thereafter. Out of Isaiah 59, it says, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. The only solution is Jesus, that people need the Lord in their life. And they need to go through a couple of very important things. It's recorded for us in a conversation on the cross out of Luke 23 between Jesus and two criminals. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Magic genie in the bottle, fix my problems that I made. But the other rebuked him and saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This is the first thing that people need. It's realization of wrong. Realization of I wasn't right, and I have contributed to this problem, and I deserve the world I'm living in. It's the first thing. It's genuine repentance. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's turning to the Lord. I know that you are the only one that can save me. This world is going to go. My life is forfeit but you're the only one that can actually bring me salvation. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a changed future. No longer what was what to be will be, but now the amazing things that can only be through God can begin. The turning to the Lord. And this is what we need to bring to people. 
So how do we do this? How do we apply this to our lives? How do we actually walk out God's call for us? Realizing if we remain the same, if we fall into the same patterns we've been, nothing will change. We'll just continue on this line. So what needs to happen? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So what Paul didn't do was drag people to his church and say, you need to be like me. No. He and everything he did made himself accessible and relatable to the people that he wanted to bring to Jesus. The impetus of change and effort is on the believer, not the people we're trying to reach. We're called to go to them, to be relatable to them so that they might be able to hear what we're trying to say to them. That's a lot of work. That is is by no means easy. What's easy is going, you're doing it wrong. We got to figure it out over here. It's not going to work. It's easy. Feels good. I did my due diligence. I showed them away. I'm not sure if they heard me. We got to go. We got to go to them. We got to make sure there's a relationship there so we can speak truth to them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Running has become really popular in the last 20 years. People run in marathons, half marathons, all sorts of things. And most people that run marathons, they're, they're competing against themselves. They're just trying to get a better time. But if you actually want to run to win, a marathon. You have to give it 100% of your all 100% of the time. You have to be going flat out if you're going to win. And you're competing against everyone else that's going flat out. So you have to push beyond anything you've ever done if you want to win. That's what God's calling us to. Not This isn't a walk. You're aiming to win this thing. That requires everything. Nobody wins by just kind of meandering through. It says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So don't run aimlessly. They're not boxes, one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I may myself should be disqualified we lose sight of what we're doing and why. 
So who are you called to? Who are you trying to race to? Are you called to your local church community to help disciple those within the body, to the children, to greet, to usher people in, to bring comfort and a place where they can hear God's word and go out and apply it in their lives? Are you called here? Then give it your all. Are you called to your greater community? Are you called to go help at the upper room and help feed the hungry? Are you called to go help those that are homeless? Are you called to go help those that are um, in crisis? Give it your all. Are you called to your nation to go help plant a church in another state? Or to go into political office and be a voice in a dark and frightening place? Give it your all. Are you called to the world to go to places that have never heard about Jesus? To go help people that just, whose lives are so much more difficult than your own and help bring them along? If so, give it your all. And I want to put a note out here. Um, on two of the things that I've heard so often that diminishes the call in their lives. And it's going to probably be the most difficult thing to share. And I'm going to give you the harsh truth first, and I'll sprinkle it with some grace afterwards. Every single person has been called to their children to raise their kids well. Every single person has been called to care for their family and their loved ones. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Every single person is called to work somewhere in some way, whether that be in the home or outside the home. 1 Thessalonians 4.11-12, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we've instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Every single person is called to take care of their household and provide for themselves. Neither one of those things is the calling. It's the expectation of everyone to do those things. The calling comes outside of that. harsh truth. Here's the grace. Some people have much more challenging families, much more challenging children, much more challenging relatives that they have to care for, and it's going to severely limit their capacity. Completely understand that. Do not diminish that in any way. But don't diminish what God can still do in your life while you're walking this out. We so often focus in on a few key giftings and think if I'm not going to serve in that way, then I just can't do it. We look to those speaking or teaching, those who are worshiping, those that are greeting, those that are in some way serving in that way, and we think, well, if I, I can't really do that, so I guess I'm not called to that. But we're diminishing the other giftings that God has spoken of. What about the gift of exhortation, of being able to speak truth and encouragement to people? Do you know how far you have to go to exhort? You got it in your pocket. You can reach 100 people a day with this, or two, or one. And I bet each one matters to the person that you sent the message to, to encourage them. Hey, that word you brought up front that the church really needed to hear, I thought that was great. Continue on. Well done. Be encouraged. It's the gift of exhortation. 
don't diminish what God can do with you just because there are some challenges to life. You can still fulfill and do mighty and great things and be of benefit to the whole body when life is busy. God can do amazing things still. There are people that have really demanding jobs, extremely demanding jobs, that if they want to be successful in what they feel God has called them to, they have to give it all of their time and expends all of their mental energy, and they're just white by the end of it. The idea of going beyond that just seems inconceivable. And I consider, and this is always hard to do as a preacher, one of the gifts that God talks to us about is the gift of giving. Those that have done amazing in industry, they're the ones who keep the lights on. They're the ones that help send people to Mexico, send people to Macedonia, send people to Uganda. They're the ones that help set it so um, they sponsor youths to go on leadership retreats. That is an amazing gift to the body that you are able to partner in because of what God has called you into. Some people are called to disciple and minister to the people at their work. Are you giving it your all, your everything? Are you inviting those people into your home, investing in their lives, being a part of this, bringing them along? There's still amazing things God can do when you're in the difficult parts of life. Romans 12, 3 through 8 says, For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we, may have, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Every one of us has been called to something different, and every one of these things is essential to the body to be fulfilling. And are we running to win our individual race? And this is going to start with certain things. First and foremost is mentorship. When you've identified your calling, have you been trained up in it? to be successful in the race you're running. If you've been called to preach the good word to people, have you ever practiced speaking in front of anybody? Do you have a good knowledge of your Bible so that you can be ready to give an answer when difficult questions come your way? Have you been walked through it? In anything you've been called to, Jesus didn't call his disciples and say, hey, great, you're on, you're on team Jesus, now go. No. He had them watch him for a while. He spoke with them. He taught them. He trained them up and then released them to go out. It begins with mentorship. It begins with getting trained up and built up so you can be successful, so you don't fall away. But then once you've been trained up, it's actually applying it, walking out. If you've been called to go help feed the hungry in our region... The upper room is not calling you. They don't know you were called to that. They might not even know who you are. you got to get a hold of them. There has to be a certain level of front-footedness here. If you've been called to help in this church and you're just waiting for somebody to ask you, 
we always need help in this church. There is never a time that I will say, no, we're full up. There is always a place to serve. But I've had many times um, asking people like, yeah, I've been waiting about three months just for somebody to ask me. Why didn't you tell me that God had put that call on you? You could have been serving for the last three months, fulfilling the call that God has for you. It's not just for the sake of relieving an area here, but it's also part of your sanctification. God building up something in you because growth will require discomfort. It will require you to step out of what's easy and into something that's a little bit challenging. In teaching, we call this the zone of proximal development. It's not too much, but it's also not too easy. It's going to require you to step out into something that helps you grow more and more into the likeness of Christ. And the last time I read my Bible, that doesn't end until you meet Jesus. And either you depart or He arrives. <laughs> is when sanctification will end. There's always room to grow. So that means we have to constantly be stepping into that next uncomfortable thing. There is no arriving no one has been called to just work, raise your kids, build wealth, retire, sit on our laurels. Jesus warns against this. That's the parable he tells of the rich man, where he's, the rich man has got so much, I need to build bigger barns, I've got much for many days, I can sit back and be at my ease. And God reaches out to that man and says, your life will be required of you tonight. Then who will all that go to? And Jesus says, so will it be with anyone who's not rich towards the Lord. It's that God has a call on each and every one of us. And it's going to require us to be honest with ourselves and see ourselves the way God sees us. As 2 Corinthians 5, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I wanted so much for this message not to be one of condemnation or guilt, but of encouragement. Because when I look out at everybody, I see busy, tired, exhausted people that love God and want to serve God. But I, more than anything else, want you to see yourself the way that God sees you yeah. and to realize that God does have a call on your life. But I can't walk out your call and you can't walk out mine. 
Each and every one of us have to walk according to what God has given us and asked us. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen.